Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Before we read that passage this evening, I want to set it up for you. It's about the church. An English pastor named David Watson in the 1960s remembered seeing on a college campus someone who held up a sign saying, Jesus, yes. Church, no. Watson says, so read the placard carried by this student. In this spiritually hungry age, the interest in the person of Jesus is unmistakable. But at the same time, the popular image of the church is that of empty and decaying buildings, aged and female congregations, and depressed and irrelevant clergy. (laughs) Thus, the growing enthusiasm for Jesus seems tragically offset by the almost total disenchantment with the church. I wonder how that settles with you. I'm preaching to the choir. You're in a church. But, you know, if you're at all like the current generation in its regard for institutions and institutional religion, that's your impression as well. At least somewhere in you, there's a suspicion. Jesus is cool. Spirituality is great. But, you know, the church, uh, isn't she kind of the problem? Last time they were polled, 81% of Americans answered yes to this question. Do you believe it's possible to be a good Christian or Jew without being involved in your local church or synagogue? They said, yeah, sure. What does that have to do with anything? So clearly, then, this is against, the idea of the church is against sort of the grain of our generation. It's against our instincts. And if you're paying attention, you know that the statistics are true. Missiologists tell us 75 to 80% of the United States of America, its citizens, are unchurched. Meaning they no longer, or they never did, regularly attend a Christian church. About one in four do. People who study missions will tell you as well that we are, as the United States of America, the largest unreached English-speaking nation in the world. Unreached with the gospel. We're the fourth largest unreached nation in the entire world after China, India, and Indonesia. People in our culture think the church is irrelevant. And yet God thinks the church is absolutely indispensable. As he'll say in Ephesians 5, Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for her as his bride. So, so what is the church and why does it matter? That's our subject tonight from Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Let me invite you to consider what the Apostle Paul says. Hear now the word of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and Members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers, 
The flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, oh, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight, that you would help us to understand your word, to behold good things in your word, to see what Jesus has done for us and given to us and made us to be. You would teach us to love what you love, your bride, the church. Do it, we pray, by your grace, and not because we're worthy, because we're not. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul tells you four things in this passage about the church that I want to highlight and why it matters. He tells you that the church is the community of God, it's the kingdom of God, it's the family of God, and it's the temple of God. I want you to think about those four things with me this evening. What is the church? What is the church? He says, well, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Consequently, therefore, so then, he says, and he's picking up on what he's been talking about. If you go back to verse 13, he's he's speaking to the Gentiles. You who were far off, far away, God has brought near through the blood of Christ. And what he did is he brought you near to the Jews, meaning he made the two, Gentile and Jew, he made the two one. And he reconciled both, all of humanity, in other words. God had divided humanity into Jew and Gentile. He reconciles both in himself through the work on the cross, and he reconciles us to God. He reunites enemies and makes us friends. He builds, in other words, a new kind of humanity, a new community. And this has been God's goal, we said. Going back to Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, he tells you that God has this plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And part of the outworking of that is he's going to create a new group of people, a body, a community. So salvation, whatever that means, it doesn't involve sort of isolated individuals, but rather God bringing those individuals into a new humanity, a new family. The church is his plan. Every other epoch in the history of the church for the last 2,000 years, Christians have believed that you could not call yourself a Christian and not be a member of a body believers known as the church. Now, I did not just say that you could not be a Christian unless you were a member of the church. But people saw the collection of the body, people coming together as part of God's plan. The early church father, Cyprian, said, you cannot have God for your father if you don't have the church for your mother. That's surprising language in our day. But, but he, the point is this, to relate to God is to relate to his people. And you can't relate to one without the other under ordinary circumstances. And Paul's view of the grand design of God in reunifying the universe is our involvement in a local church. God does in that what nobody else has been able to do. God, does, God did in the Middle East what in the modern Middle East no one seems able to do. The region is, is again aflame with war and hatred Strife and violence, Jews and Gentiles fighting. But those who are in Christ, God has made the two into one new community, Gentiles reunited to Jews, 
And in Christ, we are one people of God, no longer at war with one another. What defines us is what Christ has done for us, not diet, clothing, dietary law, ceremonial law, restrictions on access to the temple, all the things that made a Jew a Jew. Now we're defined in Christ, and we relate to one another on that basis. Now, a friend of a friend returned from hiking the entire Appalachian Trail uh, from Maine to Georgia. It's some like 2,167 miles of trail over hills and valleys. It took him six and a half months to walk it. When asked the question, what stood out most for him about that trip, his answer was this. That's easy. The trail community. There's literally no way that you could complete a 2,000-mile hike over a half a year by yourself. On the trail, you join up with literally hundreds of other hikers who all have the same goal in view, finishing the trail. And the sense of community, he says, was so rich. Everyone helped everyone. If, if a group of people found out that you were a through hiker going all the way to the end, then they went out of their way to give you food and clothing and shelter, whatever it was that you needed. Though they weren't necessarily Christians, he says, I learned more about what it means to be connected to people than I have ever learned in my life. Well, that's what the church is called to be, friends. A community of people taking the same trail to the same destination and identifying with one another and helping each other along the way. Because God has already made us one New community. So that's what the church is in the first place. It's God's new humanity. But the second thing is this. What is the church? Well, he says we are, verse 19, consequently, therefore you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. What's the church? We are fellow citizens in a new nation called God's kingdom. And he says, you're no longer one thing. You're no longer strangers, foreigners, aliens. The, the words there mean, on the one hand, strangers and foreigners means people who are, you know, either visiting for a short time in a country not their own, they're vacationing, or people who are illegal in a country not their own. And they simply don't belong there. And then the second word, aliens, refers to resident aliens, who've settled in the land, but who aren't citizens themselves. They're legal, they've got a green card, they've got a passport. They, however, don't have all the rights, though they pay some of the taxes. These are the two kinds of things he used to be with regard to the people of God. You used to be aliens and strangers and you didn't belong. Think how terrible it is to not belong. I wonder if we could even feel like that would be like Probably most of us have always belonged to some nation or state. Be the oddest thing is if you didn't. And yet it happens. And what a, what a terrible thing. Th- think of the plight of an illegal alien in the U.S. Keeping one step ahead of the police, not covered by the rights of citizenship, no passport, no sense of belonging, neighbors reject you, people look at you suspiciously, Many of those people in the United States, not all, many, many thousands, tens of thousands have been brought here not by their own design or not for the freedom they thought they were paying for, but have been smuggled in to be treated like slaves by slave masters, whether pimp 
or sex trafficker, or drug dealers, or what have you. Think of what it would be like to be that person, to feel like you've got nowhere to go, no one will help you, you've got no rights, and you don't belong. Paul says, not so with you. You used to be somebody who didn't belong. But now you're not homeless. Now you're not a second-class citizen. Now you're, in the language of Ephesians 2 earlier, now you're no longer a slave to the tyrant, the devil, but you've been freed. And Jesus is your king, and he loves you. And you're a citizen of this new nation. Think how this ought to shape us then, friends. You can't belong to this new state, God's new state, and say, I don't want those people to be part of my citizenship. You can't say, I don't want those people to be my people. They are your people. All who are in Jesus are already your people. And this is vital as well, I think, this whole idea for Christians in America who look either at the political left or the political right and say, I don't want anything to do with either of those things. Or people who say, people on the left who say, you know, I don't want to live in a country governed by people on the right. And people who are on the right who say, I don't want to be governed by a country by people on the left. I did the hand motions backwards from your perspective, I realize. I read an interesting blog post by PCA Pastor Scott Sauls entitled, To My Elated and Despairing Friends After the Election. And then just a quote from it. If you are devastated or irate over the outcome of the presidential election, relax. Things will be okay. We only need and already have one Messiah. And he did not lose this election. And if you are elated by the election outcome, settle down a bit, take inventory. We only need and already have one Messiah. And he did not win this election. See how nobody can be offended by me? Played both sides of it pretty well, I think, right down the line. Listen, for U.S. citizens, I want to speak to you. And Christians, becoming either so elated or so angry, either so hopeful or so depressed, that we evidence idolatry by putting all our hopes in the political process or the governments of this world, to that person, Paul, to me, Paul drops on me a bigger kingdom a more important state, and says, this is who you belong to. This is who you, therefore, give your first allegiance to. You give your highest joys and your deepest sorrows for. You give your best efforts and your best resources to. Jesus is king and he's on his throne. And he's made you a member of his own state. Look, it's good. It's good to long to live in a community where righteousness reigns, where There's liberty and justice for all. Where the poor are helped out of their poverty, where the rich walk in humility, where love rules and reigns among people and neighbors get along. It's it's good to long to live in that community. Just remember that the only kingdom where you will ever find that in its perfection is the kingdom of Christ 
in glory. And that kingdom has come and begun, and Jesus has started that work. You can be in that kingdom. Just believe in him. So when you join the church, friends, you can no longer say, you know, I'm primarily an American. I'm Ted Wanger. I'm Caucasian. All those things are true with me. But you have to say that what you are fundamentally is a Christian and a member of a new kind of political body, God's state. And it's a mark of the gospel, friends, at work in us when we become people who love strangers, love foreigners, love the friendless. That's a mark of the gospel. The Bible commands Christians to show hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4, 9, among other places. That word hospitality means lover of strangers. A person who is hospitable is a stranger lover. That's the Christ-likeness God wants to build in us. In fact, it's a mark of spiritual maturity if you love strangers for the sake of Christ. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that you can't even be an officer, an elder, and leader in the church of God if you don't have this kind of love. It's a necessary qualification for elders as we contemplate someday having our own elders from among our own body. They need to be the kind of people who Paul says, among other things, they are respectable They are hospitable, and they're apt to teach. They're stranger lovers, because that's what Christ is. And Christ loved you when you were far off, and he brought you near to God, and he made you his own. And you're to begin, to begin to treat others the way that he has treated you. And so that's the second thing. The third thing is, what is the church? Well, the church is this. We are family members of God's household. That's the end of verse 19. After saying we're fellow citizens, he closes with, and we are members of the household of God. This is a much more intimate picture than citizenship. We're brothers and sisters, he's saying here. We're all family here. No matter how broken we are, we need to know that we are home here. Garrison Keeler, who tells fascinating and interesting stories, tells some good ones at Thanksgiving, and he told the story about a girl named Lydia. Tired of the quiet, sleepy life in Lake Wobegon, she goes off to New Orleans to live. She follows the crowd, she lives the party life, she goes from boy to boy, from bar to bar, from job to job, and she works her way down in the hotel industry and restaurant business. She meets a guy, she moves in with him, and then she wakes up one day and she realizes the life that she's been living is bad and going nowhere. The apartment is strewn with beer cans. She puts a rent check on the TV and she leaves a note. It's been fun. Bye. She gets on a train, she goes back to Lake Louisville. She gets a job at a coffee shop in town, but everybody knows the kind of life that she lived while she was gone. It's written on her face. She always feels like an outcast. At Thanksgiving, she feels like she's separated and not one even of the family anymore. And so she goes into the living room. She goes and she stands really close to the fireplace where nobody else can stand right near. And she puts her hand up on the mantle. Her hand knocks a piece of paper and she picks it up and she looks. And it's her own high school graduation photo. And she looks at how fresh-faced she was and she misses it. 
And she's a, she sees a label taped to the bottom of it. And her first instinct is to think, oh, oh great, you know, they've, they've labeled me in my own family. And then she reads that label. It was typed by her dad on his own typewriter and taped to that picture. And the title is Our Lydia. And she says those three letters, O-U-R, stood out to her like a burning diamond. It said to her, we know what our daughter has done. We know the life that she has lived. We know the world knows it. We want you to know that we know that you know it. We want you to know that she is, however, ours. She is ours. She belongs here. She's family. And God wants you to know that, yes, he knows what you have done. And he knows how you feel about it and how you don't trust him and how you're skittish around other Christians. You don't feel confident. You don't feel like you're welcomed. And however, he has invited you into his home and this is your household. This is your family. You are welcome here. That's the church, friends. It's the hardest family to live in. It's the hardest community to live in. Living in a family is... (laughs) can be a beautiful thing. It can also be one of the most painful things, can it? Why is that? It's, it's sometimes so much easier to love strangers than your own parents and siblings and kids even. Why is that? It's because we live so close to one another. We bump into one another. We don't just see each other at our best. We know each other at our worst. We're not around other people enough For them to hurt our feelings or betray us, offend us, wound us, give us lasting hurts. Not many people, but that's what happens in families all the time. So it can be hard to live in a family. And likewise, it can be hard to live in the family of God, the household of faith. We don't all naturally gravitate to one another. We don't all have the same personality, likes, dislikes. We don't all necessarily become the best of friends, but if God accepts us because of Christ, how can we not accept one another on account of that same Christ? None of us deserves to be here. And finally, I want to say this about the family of God. If, if you're single tonight and desiring to be married, this is all the more reason why you need to marry in the Lord, as Paul tells you. In Corinthians, not to be unequally yoked, but to marry fellow believers. Don't get stuck, dear friends. Don't get stuck with a spouse whose priorities compete with the family of God. Like the woman I know who's a Christian trying to raise her children in the faith, but her husband has other aims. And he doesn't lead her or support her in bringing the family to worship. She'll tell her husband about her plan on the weekend to go to worship. And he'll say, oh, I was really hoping that would be a family day out in the woods. And she's torn weekend after weekend with a desire to spend time with her husband and children whom she loves. And a desire to spend time with the family of God among the people of God being blessed under the word of God and at the table of God for her own soul's sake. Marry someone, dear friends, who is committed to the family of God and knows it's vital for the health of their own future marriage 
and family too. Because Jesus has loved his bride and called it the church. And he's made it his own and his family. That's the third. And the fourth thing is this. What's the church? What's God's community? It's God's kingdom. It's God's family. But there's also this. Notice the language. It's a temple for God to live in. Verse 20, he says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so he reminds you that there's a foundation to this building, there's a cornerstone to this building, and that the building is being knit together with us. And that's a reminder too, isn't it, that that this building is not the church, (laughs) that We are the church. When you came to church tonight, you came to gather with God's people. This is just a building the church is meeting in. But he speaks here of a foundation to this building and a cornerstone and and then the whole building. It has a foundation. And he says the foundation is the apostles and prophets. In other words, God has poured out a foundation... And that foundation has been established. It isn't still being poured out. The apostles and prophets have come and gone. But the church is being built on that foundation. It's the, the apostles and prophets are still being discovered and built upon. These were people in Jesus' day given the role of teacher by Jesus. They had knowledge of God and the gospel revealed to them directly by God. And then they taught that and they expected the church to believe it. And what they commanded, they expected the church to do. And in practical terms, that means this. Because we no longer have apostles and prophets. We no longer lay, and we, we lay no new foundation. We grow, therefore, as a church as we receive the teaching of the apostles. And respond to it. And so what we have today are are pastors and teachers. Preachers. Who read, explain, apply what the apostles gave us. And in that regard I want to say to you this. You have no infallible pastor or teacher. Not here and not anywhere. The apostles who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And they wrote infallibly. Exactly what God wanted left to his church. But today it's the job of pastors who aren't infallible to explain and apply. And it's our job by the help of the Holy Spirit and and your job by the help of the Holy Spirit to listen and to search the scriptures and to see if these things are true. Be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who were commended because they were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they listened to the Apostle Paul and then they checked up on the Apostle Paul to see if what he said was true. Then we went back to the scriptures to hear what Paul said to find out if what he said was true. Be like that in this church. That's how we grow on the proper foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone of that foundation. And you know that the cornerstone sets things in place and make sure things stay where they're supposed to stay and keep in line there was a temple stone excavated in jerusalem from the temple of jerusalem it was massive on the southern wall it was 38 feet nine inches long in one direction just this massive cornerstone by which they set 
two walls of the building and squared it. That's what a cornerstone is, and that is what Christ is. He holds it all together. We all depend on him. And our unity with one another here in this church and our unity with all other Christians across Siloam, Arkansas, the state, the nation, and the world, our unity is not from organizational unity, because we're all Presbyterian, we're not. Our unity is not based on having the exact same ritual or liturgy, liturgy, and every church is a liturgy. Every church is a pattern of worship of some kind. Our unity comes from Christ, our cornerstone. He's already made us one. And we are, then he says, we are being built into that, verse 22. We are like what Peter says, we are living stones being built into this building. There's a famous story of the king of Sparta who was boasting to a visitor about the walls of Sparta. The visitor looked around at this ancient city and he couldn't see any walls. And the Spartan king told his guests, you see in Sparta, every man is a brick. These, as he pointed to his army, these are the walls of Sparta. And when it comes to the church, friends, that is us. We're described as living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. We're being framed and fit together. And God's got to do some mason work on us to do it. We're not what we should be. When he gets us, we don't fit exactly the way that we should. And so he's got to chip away. He's got to sand away. He's got to find just the right place for us in his church and fit us exactly where he wants us with exactly the gifts and abilities and talents and resources and time and place and history. And all those things, they're all from him. He's designed it just exactly as he wanted it in order to build this temple. In other words, he hasn't just thrown it together. What is a temple for? It is for God to live in it. It's for God to dwell in it. This whole idea of the church being a building suggests that the church is at some level highly organized by the Lord himself. In some ways mysterious, we can't even see how it all fits together. In some ways, quite directly and clearly, Christ has built his church and the church is an organization and in that church there is a structure. People will sometimes say, you know, I can, I can have my church walking in the woods on a beautiful fall day. I can stay home and lie in my bed under my warm covers and have my church. And you can say to yourself, you're part of the invisible church made up of all Christians. But Paul would say to you, God's church has a structure And we're being built together. And if we have a definition of a church that only refers to the invisible church of all Christians, then we have made irrelevant massive chunks of the New Testament. There's there's a structure in the building. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. And how could you ever submit to elders if you're not part of a body? Who would you know who to submit to? And how would the elders know who they're supposed to be shepherds of unless there was a local tangible body actually gathered together? And we need this organization, friends, for our own accountability's sake. The writer of Hebrews says that we should not 
that we should not neglect meeting together. But we should encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching, so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the reasons we need to get together is we have a sin problem that can waylay us when we least expect it, and we need other people around us who will love us enough, who have enough access to us to say, how's it going with your soul? And make us think twice about where we're headed. So we're all in this temple, and the temple is designed for God to dwell in it. And if you want to know where God is, friends, God is everywhere, certainly. And the creation displays his glory. But where you find him personally and intimately and at work in the world among people is in his church. That's where you find him. Get involved in the church. That's where the action is. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We bless you. We pray you'd have mercy on us. We pray that you would grow us up. We pray that you would teach us not only to delight in Christ, but to delight in your people. Help us to be patient and persevere in the way that you do with us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand, and we'll sing in response to the Lord's word. The, the church is one foundation.